You're listening to The Dworkin Report. I'm Scott Dworkin. Today on the show, I have Ashton Taylor. She's been spending a bulk of her time on the southern border providing medical treatment to refugees who need it. She tells us some gruesome stories that you're going to need to hear. But brace yourself. Gruesome is a light word for it. It's disturbing. She talks about how a lot of the refugees are untreated while in ICE custody with any kind of medical condition, how they're threatened if they do ask for medical treatment. They get threatened to be permanently separated from their kids if they even complained or made trouble. It's a must-listen. We broke it up in two parts because it's hard to digest. So here is part one of my interview with Ashton Taylor. Ashton Taylor, how are you today? I am fine, thank you. How are you? Good. You know, as as good as one can be in this kind of environment. It's obviously a very vitriol uh, environment right now, but it's good to have uh, people like you around that kind of give us hope through this through this darkness. And just to start off, uh, give us a little bit of your background and, and what you're up to now. Where where'd you grow up? Um, well, I'm a Houston native originally. I was a military kid, so I kind of got used to moving around from place to place. Um, but I spent most of my time growing up in Texas. I went to undergraduate at Denison University in Ohio with um, a major in environmental studies focused on environmental health. And then after graduating in 2015, decided to pursue my dream of going to medical school. And I ended up in Dallas at the University of Texas at Dallas doing postbac uh, research and coursework in biomedical science. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that's a, that's a quite a history. So are you going yeah. to be a doctor? Uh, you're, you're eventually going to be a doctor or are you trying to, what are you trying to do with the medical profession? That's the hope. Um, so I'm applying next cycle. I'm taking my MCAT in about a month and a half and then applying next cycle to see if I can have a prayer of a chance of getting in. So okay. that's I, I hope the you name do. of the game. <laughs> well, I hope you do. And what, what kind Thank of, you. what kind of doctor do you want to be? For the longest time, I've considered surgery, um, and I do have a specific interest in pediatrics. Oh, so wow. So kids. Anything, and, yeah. Okay. And uh, uh, so now you, you kind of, you, you were, I guess, what happened, let's start off with uh, you You are in Texas. What state are you in, and, and you're, you somehow end up at a facility? Can you tell me the backstory of... You know, right. You got, it, sure. Fine with sure. It. Absolutely. So I am. I'm currently in Dallas, Texas, right now, and I've kind of been following everything that's going on in the media. And there's just been so much speculation, you know, pushed one way or the other as, as far as what's going on down at the border. So I decided um, the the best way to understand something is to really be there and lay eyes on the situation. And I decided to get in my car and drive to McAllen, Texas. And that's exactly what I did. So I ended up driving down there. And I mean, you know, now that I, looking back in hindsight, I really didn't have a plan. And that's kind of, you know, it's, it's a little funny, but um, I was like wiki, Wikipedia-ing like the address for the ICE detention facility and kind of trying to find it. And I ended up bouncing around uh, between Brownsville and McAllen until finally finding the ICE detention facility that's colloquially known as Ursula because it's on Ursula Avenue in McAllen. So that's kind of what, what led me roundabout to it. And there had been, the day I showed up, um, there had been torrential flooding in the days before. So everything was flooded. There were blockades. I mean, it just kind of made the whole situation very hairy. But um, I think within a matter of 12 hours, I had gone from Dallas 
to McAllen to finding the facility and then kind of wading through knee deep water across this highway road to try and to try and access this facility or talk to somebody that could give me any information on it. Right. And then uh, at what point did you first come into interaction with, you know, refugees and immigrants? I, I guess. That would have been the next day. So I um, obviously was not successful gaining access into the into the detention facility. And I was, you know, very naive in thinking that I could ask anybody questions about it. Or, you know, I mean, as a, as a member of the American public, you think like, oh, I can I can ask you a question about this and you'll tell me an answer. And I get that. Obviously, it was not the case, but I found a respite center in basically what amounts to the old McAllen Square. So if you, you know, if you're familiar with these old Texas towns, it's it's that, that very Western vibe, you know, and so there's still kind of a, a town square feel to it in old downtown McAllen, and that's where this respite center is. So I gave them a call. There was a number on the window, and I asked, um, can I volunteer? Can I help out? And they told me, show up tomorrow at 8 in the morning. And that's exactly what I did. I showed up and walked in. And so, when you when you got there and you started, I guess you you started seeing individuals who needed, you know, first aid or maybe had headaches. Or like, how did it start out with with the, you know, you visiting not really with patients but seeing people that needed help? So. I was told, because they kind of brief everybody who's a new volunteer, they say what's going to happen and the process behind it. So we get there in the morning, we prepare everything, and then the the immigrants, once they are released from the ICE detention facility, they're essentially bussed by 100 to 150 people to this bus station. And from there, at that bus station, it's basically they're on their own. And that's, um, that's when the respite center brings volunteers to come in. And this happens every day, probably at about one to 3 PM. These volunteers are bringing these, these immigrants from the bus station into the respite center. And that's when we kind of start seeing the situation. And I mean, when the doors opened and we were waiting at the respite center, I wasn't sure what I was going to see, but you know, you kind of have to be prepared for whatever's coming through the door. And I mean, it was, there's what you prepare yourself for. There's what people speak to you about to prepare you. And then there's what you actually see. And then that, at that point, when people started walking in, I mean, there were so many emotions. It was palpable. I mean, there was a relief, obviously, because they, I, I feel that they could feel that this was a safe place and that they were no longer being detained. But it was also, I mean, you, you're kind of crushed under the weight of this uncertainty and everything that happens. I mean, uh, not, you know, not to be too explicit, but most of these people haven't had showers in days or weeks. I mean, so when the doors open, you, you're hit by an overwhelming smell of travel, of body odor, of possibly illness and, you know, a very high probability of, you know, when somebody smells sick or they look sick and their demeanor, and it's just, the air kind of just thickens with, with, everything that they've been through and it's just kind of taking a collective breath and inhaling a fraction of what they've experienced when the doors open so people kind of shuffle in and they're quiet that's the other thing too is that they're very quiet um other than the kids who are you know often crying or they're clinging to a parent if they have a parent with them or an older sibling and it's i mean i can't describe it as anything other than surreal and kind of gutting um 
to see people walk in and to see them sick and to see them downtrodden and just so many people, you know, sweating, staggering a little bit, kids kind of barely coherent as they're walking, you know, through the doors. It's really, it's really shocking. This episode of the Twerking Report is brought to you by Resistors Like You. We aim to keep this show independent for as long as we can. Visit dwarkingreport.com to see how you can help out. One of the best ways is by hitting that contribute button in the top right and giving what you can. Thanks again for your support. Here's the second half of part one of my interview with Ashton Taylor. And it's gut-wrenching. She encountered a very sick child with serious public health concern for the group very soon after working inside the facility. What she discovered afterwards was even more chilling. What, you know, for the listeners uh, out there, and I, and I think, again, it's important that people hear the truth. Um, I, I know I've seen some, some pictures and whatnot, but uh, I was wondering if you could describe some of the people, uh, kids and adults that you've encountered um, and, and, you know, as explicitly as possible. Sure. Um, so my first, uh, my first evening with the immigrants and kind of trying to triage and render first aid, cause that's all we can do is, you know, first aid, um, was, I mean, it was a pretty traumatic experience just seeing everything and it was, it was chaotic. It was confusing. Um, there's obviously a language barrier. I'm semi-fluent in Spanish and thank God for translators, but it's very, very hard when a mother is trying to speak to you very rapidly and she's holding her child and her child's really not being too responsive. And it's, um, it, it was, it was really quite scary. So that first the very first night was when we saw um, the, the chicken pox case. So we, I think we had been well into it, maybe two or three hours of seeing people with fevers and, okay, let's get you a fever reducer. Let's get you Pedialyte. And we're kind of trying to, to get people through the doors in and out. And then we see a boy come in and he's kind of itching. And I look at him, you know, kind of bend down to his level. I talk to him, how old are you? And I notice the sores and that's when my stomach kind of drops and it never even occurred to me, you know, as somebody in a country where vaccines are commonplace as they should be, you know, and healthcare is kind of a thing that we, that we take for granted that we have here. I see these sores on him and I just think, Oh God. Oh my God, you know, because we've already seen how many pregnant women walk through here. We've seen how many tiny babies walk or, you know, be walked through in their mother's arms. And I'm thinking, oh my God, if he has chicken pox or something viral, what, what are we going to do? I mean, that was, that was my first thought. I kind of, uh, um, pulled a nurse aside. I asked her, you know, does this, does this look like something to you? And she, she said, Oh my God. Yes. So the best we can do is take this, this tiny boy and his mother and kind of like pull him aside basically into a corner of this clinic room and try and put a mask on him and say, Oh my, you know, just contain everything. But he had been itching to the point of, I mean, you could see nail tracks in his arms and his abdomen and his leg. When I pulled his shirt up, I mean, there were very clearly marks where he had been digging into his skin for several days. 
And, you know, mom told us that this started a couple days ago, which would corroborate with, you know, a viral infection, a pretty rapid onset. He had started feeling really bad, fever aches, chills, and the the blistering. And these, these wounds, these blisters were still weeping. And I'm thinking, oh my God, if he's touched anything in that facility or if any, if he's, you know, breathed on anybody, it, it got, it got me panicked, you know, I mean, it, it was a, it was a potential panic situation where we're all kind of trying to stay calm. We're trying to stay calm for the mom um, because we don't want to, you know, alarm her or anything. I don't think that she knew, you know, that what was going on, if it was potentially something, you know, this contagious or viral. Um, I mean, his eyes were kind of weepy and crusty and he had, I mean, you could see his ribs poking out. Like when I lifted his shirt up, I could feel individual ribs. And that was just, I mean, to see, to see a child walk in with open sores that haven't been treated with a high fever and with his ribs showing after, you know, X amount of days in U.S. custody it was, it was flabbergasting. And I, you know, I asked, I said, mom, did you, did they do anything for you? And she said that she tried to tell them that he was sick. And, um, the, the officials at the ICE detention facility did nothing. And that was just really, it, it just took my breath away. It absolutely took my breath away to see, you know, the, the tracks in, in his arms and abdomen and legs and just how much he was suffering was, it, it, I mean, it, it changed me. There was definitely something that changed me about, about seeing that. And that, I will tell you, was not the first case of that that I had seen. And it, I, I don't think it will be the last, given what I'm being told from these people about how, how they're treated when they ask for help or that they're threatened if they should ask for help. And that was the scariest part was that, you know, so many mothers have come to me saying I was afraid to, to report this for my child because if I did, they told us if we made any trouble, I would never see my children again. Well, um, one thing, a couple of clarifying questions when, when they, uh, they're dropped off at this bus station in the United States and then they're unattended to is what you're saying? Yes. Okay. And then are there ever children that are alone that are dropped off at that bus station or no, or no? To my knowledge, I've seen unaccompanied children in that respite center that did not have parents with them. I would estimate maybe about 20 to 40 that I had seen that were not accompanied by parents. And that, was also particularly heartbreaking. So some of them had older siblings, which, you know, maybe 15 to 16. But if you can imagine, you know, being a 15 or 16 year old and having custody of your younger sibling in a country where you don't speak the language and you've essentially been through hell and you've got to get somewhere literally across the nation, that's not, you know, that's, that's not any, any semblance of responsible custody. So how many people did you do you see a day when, when when you were there? So the buses dropped them off maybe 100 to 150 people per bus, and I had only seen one busload for a few days. And after maybe five days, there started to be two buses and then three buses. And I think the maximum I saw was three buses where they started putting people in the bus station and they showed up in masks. So it was, 
the volume of it, I mean, even in the short duration of time that I was there, the volume of people and the volume of people who were ill increased dramatically. Right. And, and when you, uh, when you had them over in the, uh, when you were volunteering or whatever, how many patients did you see a day? How many people who were ill or needed to be checked on? Did you on average see a day and how many do you think on average would come through there on a daily basis in total? Just an average. I would say maybe 50. If I had to go from the lowest end to the highest possible end, 50 a day. There were some days that we might be done and wrapped up by 9 p.m. And there were some days that we didn't stop treating people from when the buses got there at 1 p.m. until midnight. Right. And I saw also, I saw a photo of an uh, ankle bracelet. Can you tell me the story behind that, the ankle yes. bracelet on the, the refugee? Yes, absolutely. So we have seen um essentially when people come in every adult i think the youngest person i saw with one might have been 15 or 16 actually but every adult man and woman that i saw had one of these ankle monitors on and um with the exception of one woman i saw one woman in my entire time there and she told me that she was blessed that she didn't have to wear one and i'll I'll kind of let that sink in, you know, that you're you're blessed to go through this this treatment and this hell and to and to not wear an ankle monitor was was her, you know, her piece of solace. And that's that's particularly horrifying. But every every adult that I saw had one of these on. And I think they are to track them. Um, I'm not particularly familiar with the U.S. justice system or the criminal system, but it looked like one of those monitors that you would see on, for instance, a parolee or something. So they all have to wear them. And that's, I think, part of the conditions of their release from the ICE detention facilities is that they wear these ankle monitors so that they can be tracked and check in with the people that they need to check in with while they're petitioning against their deportation. What happened to that person's ankle that you had taken a, a picture of due to the, the ankle bracelet? This was one of many, if not most, that I saw that were just put on egregiously tight. I mean, they were uncomfortably tight and I see absolutely no reason to do that. If it stays on, it stays on. But there's no reason to make that flush to the skin on the ankle to where it's cutting off circulation in some cases. This woman in particular, I mean, she had to take an aspirin. And the best we could do for her was to try and get the swelling around her ankle to go down and put you know, some sort of antibiotic cream on it because it had been chafing so much and because she had been forced to stand up and walk around and, and all of this, the ankle monitor had actually dug into her. So if you can picture, you know, right, right on your Achilles, right on the back of your ankle, every step you take this piece of ugh, hunk of plastic and metal is digging into your skin over and over again. It's, I mean, it's painful. It's incredibly painful. It's upsetting. Um, and she was visibly upset. Her children were visibly upset that, that they were looking at this. And it had been bleeding, to my knowledge, for, she told us, for a few days. And she said that she complained that it was too tight. And they said there was nothing that they were going to do for her. And that was, this is par for the course. I mean, these people have all come in saying it's, you know, it's too tight. And I'm, I'm sitting here scared that if it, if it gets bad enough, first of all, if that gets infected and it's not treated, what's going to happen? Or second of all, if that cuts off someone's circulation for long enough, what, what are the long-term effects of, of that happening? If you spend, you know, days to months on end with something around your ankle that you can't remove and you can't loosen, what, what's going to happen? Maybe lose your foot or leg. Right. 
It's exactly, exactly. I mean, and it's really, it's, it's really terrifying. We'll be back again tomorrow with part two of my interview with Ashton Taylor. I'd like to thank my producer, Grant Stern. You can visit our website at dwarfandreport.com. Thanks again for listening.